When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Robert Aldrich's The Dirty Dozen and how it shocked the straits, delighted the box office, and helped change how we look at war on film. Now we're going to look at the DC extended universe movie Suicide Squad, which writer-director David Ayer, also the writer of Training Day and Harsh Times, has said is openly a modern riff on The Dirty Dozen. The funny thing is, the origins of Suicide Squad actually predate Dirty Dozen by nearly a decade. The first version of the Suicide Squad hit comics in 1959 in DC's title The Brave and the Bold. It didn't involve supervillains back then, but it was a similar concept. John Ostrander revamped it in the 1980s, bringing in a mostly different roster of villains than the ones we know from the film. And then the squad has come back in various incarnations over the years in comics and on the DC TV show Arrow. Being on the Suicide Squad used to be a lot less amped up and a lot more fatal than it is in this movie, which is a kind of candy-coated concoction that brags about how good it is to be bad. But like Dirty Dozen, it's ultimately more interested in how the people behind the villain conscript team are as bad as the villains themselves, and how being on the front lines changes people and teaches them respect for each other, if not respect for anything else. We'll get into Suicide Squad and how it is and is not like Dirty Dozen in a moment, but first, this word from our sponsor. Injection you got. It's a nanite explosive. It's the size of a rice grain, but it's powerful as a hand grenade. You disobey me, you die. You try to escape, you die. You otherwise irritate or vex me, and guess what? You die. I'm known to be quite vexing. I'm just forewarning you. Lady, shut up! This is the deal. You're going somewhere very bad to do something that'll get you killed. But until that happens, you're my problem. So was that like a a pep talk? Yeah, those pep talks. So guys, Suicide Squad is taking a really vicious beating in the press as we're recording this. It might even be more vicious than the one Dirty Dozen took back in its day. Um, What did you guys make of it? I wanted to like it. (laughs) <laughs> I really did. I, I feel that way about a lot of DC movies. I have a real deep fondness for the DC comic book characters, and, and, and I would like to see them successfully translated in a way. I, I don't necessarily have that huge attachment to the Suicide Squad, although I think it's a really great concept. But I 
really didn't like it, guys. <laughs> I really didn't. And there's, there's there's some redeeming qualities to it. I liked Robbie. I liked I liked Will Smith. You know, I think there's some good actors trying to bring some interesting characters to life here. But it's hard. This movie is so disjointed. Storytelling is awful. I mean, mm-hmm. and it is. It feels like it's patched together with like pipe cleaners and duct tape. And 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 the villain is sort of this bizarre. My <laughs> Mike Ryan who writes for Uprock. I edited his review and he, and he kept describing a dancing witch. And like this, he's got to be exaggerating. Like, nope, this is the dancing witch. Is the bad guy here? Um, there are moments that kept trying to win me back, like the scene where they're all hanging out and kind of bonding in the bar. You know, like okay, maybe I can get on board with this. But it's it's such a bizarre start to the film. Like for the first hour, every scene feels like. It should be the first scene or mm-hmm. could be the first scene. It's got this in-your-face attitude that I, I abhor. But I, I, the, the hardest part for me was the end. I think that the finale is disastrous. There's this one shot of Enchantress, the villain, who is the dancing witch, who is like her CGI form framed against this sort of like really ugly CGI cacophony going on behind her. And I felt like this is just the dregs. This, this is like digital runoff. I feel like I'm just watching like some kind of <laughs> byproduct of, of summer blockbusters being excreted at me. And and, and I I uh, I don't know. I I was I didn't like it. Okay, so CGI excrement. Top that, guys. <laughs> I also th- I thought it was awful. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't think there's a whole lot of contrast between Keith and myself on that front. Um, David Ayer he wrote Training Day, which I like quite a bit, and he made a lot of movies, uh, Dark Blue. Harsh Times, Street Kings, End of Watch. He likes to make edgy, you know, cop movies or war movies like Fury. He's an edgy guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that tendency really harms this movie. He's, I think maybe there was the thought that he would be the, the natural fit for it. But uh, Suicide Squad uh, uh, lacks chill. <laughs> it is a film that is hyper aggressive to a fault. I mean, I think it's trying to be cool and it's it's lame <laughs> that's not a very sophisticated criti- that's not a very sophisticated criticism but Would you say it's, it's lame it's i think it's a lame it is a lame movie um it, it's, i knew it's we were strings- in trouble early on with the music cue that's the mm-hmm. other thing i was yeah. just about to mention it, you talked about how it was patched together that's one of the ways it's patched together i don't know what percentage of the 175 million dollar <laughs> budget was spent on soundtrack cues but this thing has got Everything. Well, I, mean, I mean, do we really need to hear Seven Nation Army again? <laughs> or, or okay, it's in Louisiana. What? What's the first song that comes to mind? Okay, I know House of the Rising Sun. Well, let's get House of the Rising Sun on there. Yeah. You know, yeah, like are the these guys evil? Ones. All right, where's sympathy for the devil? Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah. I can't believe Bad of the Bone did not make this soundtrack. <laughs> uh, but it is. It just struck me as a film that was trying way too hard to be sort of badass, and it and it wasn't. Uh, and it's PG thirteen. I mean, I like Deadpool. I like kind of a jerky superhero movie that was a solid hard R and. I think it more or less that one also tried too hard but to better effect I, yeah I mostly uh, Margot Robbie aside I think it was almost complete failure for me this is definitely a bad movie but I think the ways in which it's bad are interesting so it's not a boring movie so I will give it credit for that is uh, over say Man of Steel I didn't see Batman be Superman but it was more fun to watch than Man of Steel for that reason but the line that is kind of forming around this and I don't know to what extent this is true and what extent this is just kind of a narrative being placed 
on the making of this film is that it was originally filmed kind of with the the dark and gritty DC template in mind, you know, the, um, which seems probably more in, in Ayer's wheelhouse. Mm. And then following Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, there, there seemed to be a lot of backlash to, to that style and a desire for a more lighthearted tone like you see in a lot of the DC TV universe. And there were a lot of reshoots done. The branding and marketing around it became a lot more colorful and a lot more uh, looking like a line of Hot Topic merchandise. <laughs> I knew we couldn't get to this without mentioning Hot Topic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it really feels like kind of a new a new attitude was grafted onto this this movie after the fact. But the thing is, I like all that stuff. Like you guys said, like Margot Robbie is tremendous fun. And the opening to this film with like all the crazy text on screen and, and obvious music cues and title cards and everything, like it's a mess, but is it was at least like kind of a fun mess. You know, I was I was like, what is happening? It reminded me a lot in the, in the first like half hour or so of Zack Snyder's Watchmen in that way. And just like, okay, this is kind of weird, but I might be on board. And then it just doesn't live up to that weirdness and the the structure and pacing is really weird uh storytelling is bad and it's confusing and the motives make no sense and the timeline makes no sense but there is something fun under all that crap (laughs) but it's just too far buried i think listening to you guys talk i think i'm more positive on this than than any of you without necessarily calling it out as a great movie i just i mean i did see batman v superman and i found it so dispiriting i mean the the logistical flaws of that movie the character flaws of that movie the storytelling flaws of that movie all of the ways in which it takes a really potentially interesting premise and just treats it like not only the most serious stuff on earth but like the gravest and ugliest most stuff on earth. It's like there's I wrote a piece for The Verge about the latest X-Men movie, X-Men Apocalypse, and how every single character in that movie has the same sullen glower. And it doesn't matter if they're teenagers dealing with mutant teenager issues or if they're villains trying to destroy the world or if, you know, their wife and child has just been unnecessarily fridged. They all go around with the same glower on their face. And I'm so tired of that. This movie is trying to be playful. And in some cases, it's trying to be playful with grafted in punchlines that were clearly shot later. And in some cases, it's trying to be playful with this wicked badass, you know, Jared Leto as the Joker kind of playfulness with dead pigs turning up in people's dressing rooms and whatever. That's metatextual. Well, it's, yeah, yeah, but it's just, it speaks to like the attitude of like, this is subversive and dangerous and like, this isn't your father's PG-13 rated (laughs) action comedy or whatever. But I found it such a relief after so much DC dourness. I found this movie really playful and that to me excuses a bunch of it. Here's the thing for me. This movie is really disjointed. Mm-hmm. I, like I'm definitely not arguing with any of you on that and in particular it feels like it should have been as long as Dirty Dozen because it's got a cast as big as Dirty Dozen and it's got the same problem with here are all these characters we're going to introduce with a few words on screen. Maybe they'll get a two minute scene to themselves. Maybe they won't. Maybe that scene will just consist of glowering and growling Uh, But then by the end of it, we're expected to have some idea who these people are. Okay, that's fine. All their, their identity is, 
supervillain badass. Some of them have much more established, like long running histories in the comics. And for the fans, we know who these characters are. You know, we don't need to be told a whole lot more about Killer Croc than lives in the sewers, ugly as hell, really mad, really mean. But then at the same time, they suddenly shift. They they shift in their, their kind of like reluctant allies. And then they shift in maybe their friends. And then they shift and they're trying to impress each other. And it, as you said, it feels like we're missing, like over and over and over, it feels like we're missing the steps that would make this work. Well, because they just throw them right into their first and, and really only mission. Like you, you don't have that team building element. They become a team like in the midst of their mission. And there's so much other stuff happening there that it, it never really comes together. I, what, what this movie needed was a training montage. <laughs> I mean, and consider too that as far as the, uh, developing them as a group, you really almost feel like the screenwriters of the director decided, oh gosh, we really do have to develop these characters. Let's just stop the action just dead and have them all go into a bar and start chatting with each other, (laughs) which is very strange. I mean, I don't necessarily mind that some characters get more emphasis than others. That was true of the Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen, there's only maybe three or four of the inmates who get the bulk of the attention. And here you have the same situation. So I I did not care so much about that. But there's just, there's a lot of excess things that could be, I mean, what is Joker doing in this movie i could use a little less of things like that's katana she's talking to her sword because that sword killed her husband <laughs> and that sword and his now his soul is inside of so it. that's the, that's the one thing that that's the one unifying theme of the movie though right mm-hmm. is that is all Wait, these characters all, no just all, all these characters are dealing with loss in some way and you know grief in some way and they're sure. bonded by that i mean at least you have some thematic tissue that maybe accounts for something that clunky but uh, i'll what... give, give you the segue you were looking for before which describe those characters as damaged a la the tattoo on the joker's forehead yeah so what is joker doing in this movie i mean you, you either that you could write the joker out and the movie would be fine he's not he's not really the focal point in terms of villainy in the movie at all he and harley quinn have a relationship and that is his purpose in the, in the film but that's a pretty thin rationale for including him at all isn't it i think there's a couple of things you know he's part of harley's origin but i also think they had to do the work of laying the groundwork of future movies here the solo oh, batman see, movie that he'll inevitably, inevitably turn i don't out. care and, about that and though. the final the final credits thing that i would say is setting up a justice league versus suicide movie that we may yeah. or may not get see, to i, I don't uh, that i i can't stand that stuff <laughs> I, I just I, it's a it's a huge pet peeve of mine to have movies that are in the business of setting up other movies movies to the detriment of their own uh, standalone value. For me, I mean, the reason the Joker is in this movie is because his relationship with Harley defines them both. They're they're less defined by their personal damage than by what they bring to each other. And I, I find Jared Leto's uh, take on the Joker like both just grotesque in a kind of like a grimy, tiring way. And just really, really over the top and full of itself. But the two of them in relationship to each other, I actually found really interesting because I've seen so much Harley Quinn stuff where she's kind of a bimbo. She's like this little pop tart that like follows him around giggling and and begging for scraps of his attention. Here they're they're Mickey and Mallory like they're they're made for each other in the sense that he almost literally made her into who and what she is now. And we actually get to see that happen in a way that's not going to make much sense for people who don't know the character, the whole business with the chemical vats, which is not explained in any way yeah. in the film. No, and and not any part of Harley's origin that I've seen before. Not that you can't redo origins for movies or whatever, but it was a kind of a baffling scene. I didn't hate his Joker. Like, I thought I was going to hate his Joker. Like, I the, the pictures 
leading up to it, like I felt like they were boiling down everything I don't like about contemporary Batman adaptations into one image. But it actually seemed like a plausible Joker operating in 2016 comic book universe in a way. Um, I didn't think his iconic performance the way that Nicholson or Ledger were. And I felt like he was actually channeling Nicholson a little bit too much at times. But uh, I was prepared to really object to it. And I thought it was okay. I think that's because the I mean the Nicholson version was kind of defined by crazy and the Ledger version was kind of def- defined by anarchy like they they both are tied into the crimes they commit much more here they're the two of them as I say are really just tied into each other mm-hmm. and it's it's a relationship that really defines the film the fact that he's constantly pursuing and trying to save her as you say everybody in this film is is damaged and missing something missing someone full of loss full of anger but the two of them have something that grounds both of them which is really saying something given how crazy they are did you guys know that deadshot has a daughter (laughs) (laughs) Uh, speaking of things 11 years old and cute and cries a lot speaking of things that ground a character yeah we haven't really talked about will smith's deadshot which i i thought this was the most i've liked will smith in 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 quite some time too Uh, but the effort to humanize yes. that character just you could hear the gears squeaking just every time that, that that aspect of his character that he was a father was brought up and, and you don't really need that much work because he's will smith you naturally right. want to like him on some level even if he is a contract killer yeah and it's antithetical to the idea of the movie to make this bad guy like have uh, noble reasons for being bad like that's i think that's what i like so much about harley quinn's character it's she just reveled in being a bad guy and I feel like that is what this movie was supposed to be about and it just pulled back on that so often and and also with the Diablo character too if you're if you're gonna do this do it you know have your Mm -hmm. bad guys be bad guys don't have them be flawed heroes well that actually is exactly the topic that I was going to bring to the table so maybe this is a good time to transition into topics first though we're going to take a little break to hear from our sponsors Here's to honor among thieves. Not thief. She's not a thief. Well, we almost pulled it off, despite what everybody thought. Worst part of it is they're going to blame us for the whole thing. And they can't have people knowing the truth. We're the patsies, the cover-up. Don't forget, we're the bad guys. So we're back and we're going to talk topics. Um, starting off, you know, usually we don't start with a host, but I mean, you, you gave me the perfect lead up and the, the topic was villainy. It strikes me that both Dirty Dozen and Suicide Squad kind of come in with the premise of here is an ensemble of bad guys that are being repurposed. They're being upcycled. Mm-hmm. They're being forced under duress to become good guys or at least accomplish something that the theoretical good guys don't want them to accomplish. The problem is that the good guys in both of these cases are deeply deeply compromised. Mm. The American hierarchy, uh, kind of represented by Ernest Borgnine in Dirty Dozen, is compromised and has come up with really a terrible plan and not a whole lot of support for that plan. And then they're kind of, you know, throwing uh, Lee Marvin into it head first, whether he wants to go or not, whether he's the right person, whether any of these people are redeemable. They don't care. They've got an idea that involves throwing away a bunch of human beings in hopes of killing a whole bunch of other human beings. 
But the whole idea of the villain team is really a great, compelling idea. And I think it it lured in so many people, especially with Suicide Squad. But then both of these movies walk it back. Both of these movies, the characters that you get to know, the vast majority of them are not Telly Savalas. They're not the Joker. They're people who did what they did because of an accident or because they were trying to survive. In both cases, our villains are so compromised as villains that they're kind of halfway to all of the way to anti-heroes already. And, you know, there's a long tradition of anti-heroes already. We've seen plenty of anti-heroes on screen. I wanted more Telly Savalas. I wanted more uncompromised bad guys. I I kind of wanted a little more Captain Boomerang. I just didn't want actual <laughs> Captain Boomerang because he was a joke and he didn't accomplish anything useful during the entire film. I want to know the story behind his pink stuffed unicorn. Do you though? I, I love I love how ineffectual <laughs> Captain Boomerang is. His powers are so pitiful compared to <laughs> everyone else. You know, we've got you know dead shots are really sharp. Dead shot can like shoot anyone with pinpoint accuracy from miles away. And yeah, but if you want to throw something at somebody and have it come back to you, <laughs> yeah, that, he is good at that. He does. Well, except towards the end when the one thing he does accomplish is throw a boomerang with a camera on it into the room with the bad guy, and then it blows up and it doesn't come back to him. Mm-hmm. And he he just has such a lost look on his face like it's the old 60s novelty song my boomerang won't come back <laughs> i mean that's that's captain boomerang i'm curious whether you guys like wanted more villainy out of the villains in either of these movies not so much the dirty dozen because i felt like that was appropriate level of villainy in a way and, and and if you didn't soften those guys you wouldn't have a rooting interest or you know so many of the them were there for morally gray reasons or at least the ones we cared about um with this one, yeah, I think they kind of cut to the we're on a team. By the time of the end where they're sticking up for each other and Harley's calling them family. Was it Harley that calls them family? Someone refers to them as Oh, family, no. So. It was uh, Diablo's like, I no, lost one family. Yes, I'm not losing right. another Diablo one. Diablo calls them family. Harley says, these are my friends. Or like, We didn't see that bond take place. I agree uh, that a Suicide Squad needed more villains. I mean, and, uh, Genevieve's already mentioned that part of what makes Margot Robbie's character so you know effective because, because she really enjoys being bad. And uh, to me, though, the, the Dirty Dozen, just the actors themselves are so self-possessed and you don't really need to embellish upon, you know, Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson. Right. These are just sort of titans of badassery you don't need to do anything else really from a writing perspective to kind of like juice that up david Ayer is doing nothing but kind of goosing up these characters what if we'd had like a hot pink type on the screen when we first meet george kennedy and dirty what if he was slamming an energy drink yeah these, yeah right i mean that whole oh god suicide squad reminds me of it's just like one long energy drink commercial uh, right you don't need any of that and, and i i was i was resistant to that device at the beginning of just like slamming all of the stuff of these people on the screen it's a style dial it back I think I think it fits in the context of a comic book movie like because that's something that comics do a lot the Warriors didn't need that I mean the Warriors had kind of a similar this feels a lot more like smoke and aces actually (laughs) (laughs) you're right though (laughs) I didn't even make that comparison but yeah this is the smoke and aces as comic book movie I couldn't remember the title of the movie that movie I just remembered like all of the introductions and I had to google like movies like Snatch but with assassins (laughs) to find it and it was the first thing that popped up. <laughs> yeah, it would, wouldn't it? And that's title uh, dropping the G. Oh boy. Smoking yeah, so aces. so here's the thing. I like I I buy Harley as a villain. I buy that she enjoys villainy. I buy that she's actually pretty crazy in a movie where a lot of the characters are trying to out crazy each other because crazy is cool, man, because it makes us unpredictable, man. But the unpredictability of these characters is supposed to be the appeal. That's that's 
part of what you're supposed to get. You know, for years, people were like, why are the Disney villains so much more interesting than, than the good guys? Well, it's because they've got all the style. It's because you don't know what they're going to do. And for the most part of most movies, they have all of the power. Like, I wanted a lot more of that kind of villainy, like of characters doing things that I hadn't seen heroes do, slightly dark heroes. But like Deadpool ends up being like more of a, a dark villain type character. And he's he's unabashedly an anti-hero, but he's still darker than some of the super dark characters here. One thing I find interesting in both of these films is like when your protagonists or your heroes are villains or are bad guys, the thing that they're fighting has to be worse, but neither movie is able to really explore the force that is worse. Like in both cases, these bands of bad guys are fighting a really kind of incohate just force, you know, like the the evil Nazis. We just know that the, they're Nazis. And that's enough. That's enough because, you know, we know Nazis are bad and it's shorthand for like the most evil thing you can be. So yeah, of course... Some, some of them are bald, some of them are weasley looking. <laughs> right. You get all different types of, right, of right, Nazis. Right. And then in Suicide Squad, it's even less clear what the evil they're facing is. We just know that it's really evil because it puts a lot of like trash in the sky and the CGI light show everywhere, you know. But there is no motivation for the force that these heroes slash villains are fighting. I'm going to say that, that Enchantress and her brother or whatever is going on, the Dancing Witch, these are terrible choices <laughs> for, for, for a villain. Big Bad wants to blow things up light show you know that, that's all we they want to take that. over the world yeah, yeah but yeah. they want to take over the world by destroying the world her whole plot was building a machine and, and then that, that the is machine literally is like a glowing column of yeah. floating trash yeah i don't yeah. think she knows what a machine Wait, is the, how'd you describe that the henchman gugas or whatever you know like <laughs> glowing, jubes, glowing cgi hooba jubes yeah, so the jubes in this are, are awful too because they really I, mean, I can tell they spent a lot of money on them and, and their cgi or whatever but they really do look like the 2016 equivalent of like a 50s sci-fi movie mm-hmm. where they just threw people in rubber suits, you mm. know? It's just indistinct, personalityless, not in any way striking-looking uh, bad guys. Here's my thing about the, the giant glowing machine of doom. I thought it was a deliberate joke, and I actually found it really hilarious. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it was Guardians of the Galaxy that made me sick of bad guy has MacGuffin is going to destroy the world, column of light, flowing trash. When we've gotten that so many of superhero movies since then, here it's like, she's like, I am mad at people, therefore, I don't know, machine, glowing light, and I'm just going to stand here until somebody comes and defeats me. There's no timeline, there's no urgency, and I felt that that was really deliberate. Scott, you called out the, the point where they're like, eh, we don't feel like fighting this, let's go into a bar. Hmm. I thought that was a huge inside joke about how all of these movies work. I thought it was really subversive and deliberate oh. that they they say, eh, yeah, there's... a giant world-destroying threat over here. It must be Tuesday. Let's go have a drink. I, I really found that funny. I found well, it maybe super the premise, weird. Maybe the premise to getting them there, but you didn't find the actual action within the bar to be stultifying? Well, the action within <laughs> the bar was obviously cut to ribbons because we had so much footage from it in the ads that didn't show up in the bar. Yeah. In the bar, they walk in and they're like, so what's your deal? Well, well, angst. Oh, yeah, you Me know too. what? Me too. Angst. Yeah, angst. Let's be best friends forever from now yeah. on. 
No, that was a real problem. Yeah. But yeah. the point where they abandoned ship to go into the bar, like I liked that. So you're citing the they meant to do that defense? <laughs> I feel like they <laughs> meant to do that. That's a popular defense on the next picture show. <laughs> also, I, I have to, before we get off the topic of the dancing, which Genevieve had a particular insight into what that reminded her of. Well, Scott was trying to think of what her dancing reminded him of and i said elaine bennis from seinfeld (laughs) (laughs) so which tasha does not understand nope but (laughs) but trust me it's hilarious in the 90s (laughs) okay so the thing about the the so-called villain teams in this movie is that they don't necessarily have to be the strongest villains because in both cases there's another tier of villains keith your topic i believe was leadership (laughs) yeah i don't really want to talk about rick flag as played by joel kinnaman who's the sort of the team leader because that character is so boring. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> nothing against Kenneman who's been boring. Good. Well, also boring. He's been good. He was good in the, the killing. No, he was not. I'm, I'm being generous. Oh, you of are. course, I bailed on the, the killing. Well, fairly, in, early in on. Robocop. Oh, so yeah, he was boring good. Robocop too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had this insane training regimen. I thought you said you didn't want to talk uh, about him. Oh, uh, well, I don't want to talk. Okay. All right. I do want to talk about Lee Varvin's Major John Reisman versus uh, Viola Davis's Amanda Waller because I think they're, those are the parallel characters here. Mm-hmm. And, and I find one vastly preferable to the other because I, I it goes back to the first scene that he already does where we, we figure out who Reisman is. He witnesses this perhaps just but still cruel hanging of a of soldier who's committed a crime. And that tells you everything he needs to know. He, like, he's just this principled guy who's like, trying to find a way to avoid this and by assembling this team. Viola Davis is a wonderful actress, and Amanda Waller is an interesting character in other forms. But I ended up hating her character so mm-hmm. much. And like, I know people are going to actually me on this. It's like, actually, she's supposed to be the bad guy. Like, I know, I get it. She's <laughs> she's supposed to be as bad as any of the bad guys. But, you know, the moment that really turned on me was the twist in the film is they're rescuing her, which was another an odd uh, storytelling device. And then when she assassinates all the people that work for her because they know too much, like without blinking an eye, it's like I find this character repulsive. Like, not even like I find her morally, you know, living in a morally gray area or it's like, wow, this is someone who goes to extremes to for the greater good. It's like, no, I hate her. I'm going to root for Enchantress now. Burn, burn it all <laughs> burn it all to the ground, you know. I, I, uh, Build a um, machine. And again, Davis is really good. I don't think this is her best performance. She looks a little checked out in some of these scenes, frankly. Mm-hmm. But uh, as the head of this of this mission as the embodiment of what this stands for i really uh push back i just I kind of found this whole thing repulsive she was the villain i was hoping for she was the villain who embraces it and doesn't care and is not ashamed and is not backing up on you know a secret love child she's got somewhere that gives her a soft little heart she doesn't have a pink fluffy unicorn I I love the fact that they do so much in this film, like as blatant as it is with the fact that she's a black woman in power and that white men keep not having any idea what to do with her. I love the fact that she is completely uncompromising and does not give a crap and doesn't take any crap. I think that she's repulsive and I liked it. What is her code? What does she stand for? Yeah, that was part of it, too. It's like other than leading this mission and, and leading this and, and not, you know, having the world not end, you didn't really get a sense of what drove her. Yeah, I agree that the idea of making Amanda Waller the big bad is really intriguing. But I don't think the movie pulls it off because it's unclear what motivates her other than a, the idea that she needs to be the worst character. 
Yeah, if you can give me a reason for her doing what she does beyond she's a badass, check her out being a badass. She says up front that, I mean, she's basically doing it for for America. Like, here's the thing that I don't understand. She keeps she comes back to like, what if Superman had been a bad guy? We don't need to use that as an example. We have other Kryptonians who were bad guys and they were terrible and they wrecked entire cities. Why not say aliens showed up? They were super powered. They were terrible. We need to be ready for the next one. When she says that, I believe her. For those of you who don't know me officially, my name is Amanda Waller. There's an event in Midway City. I want you to enter the city, rescue HVT-1, and get them to safety. I'm sorry, uh, for those of us who don't speak good guy, what is HVT-1? The only person that matters in the city, the one person you can't kill. Complete the mission, you get time off your prison sentence. Fail the mission, you die. Anything happens to Colonel Flagg, I'll kill every single one of you. Remember, I'm watching. I see everything. There's your pep talk. So that's it. What, we some kind of suicide squad? I'll notify you next to Ken. Okay, well, let's, let's because we're talking about Suicide Squad and the Dirty Dozen, and, and Lee Marvin invited all the Davis characters being, you know, analogous. Uh, let, let me get on that a little bit more, because I, I think that it's very helpful to have Marvin be, you know, the center of the movie, because just as a organizing body for the Dirty Dozen to work as a clear piece of storytelling. You don't have that at all with Amanda Waller. I mean, the, the justification for assembling this squad is so nebulous, right? Her argument is what? Superman is out of the picture, right? And so they need to have some sort of stopgap solution or they need to have uh, put this team together to fight whatever vague world-ending threat might be on the horizon. Am I wrong about that? No, but I mean, we've already had one evil Superman. We could have more evil sure, Superman. Sure, right. Uh, but I think it w- the, the fact that this team, which is extremely dangerous to... Assemble does not have a well-defined mission. In fact, the mission ends up being uh, they have to stop <laughs> someone from their own team. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Enchantress, I mean, which to me could have been a, kind of a fun irony in the film that isn't. But they really... never meet her. They never meet Enchantress. But prior to this, so there's yeah. no there's no relationship between except for Rick Flagg. She's a hoobajoo By the time they meet yeah. her, she's not a person anymore. But is, she's intended to be part of this. Sure, squad. right. They, we know that, but they don't know that. Right. It'd be more interesting if they had known her in some. And she had be, like yeah. betrayed them or, or, right. or exactly. done something like that. But I just I think it hurts. Amanda Waller is a character and it hurts the movie not to have a, a clear reason for this group to be assembled and, and a clear mission for them to, to go on. I mean, the film is is a mess as a piece of story, as storytelling. And that I think you need to get that right, especially when you're dealing with so many characters and so many moving parts. It never came together for me at all. Well, your topic uh, was the mission. Mm-hmm. And you had said that we'd covered a lot of what you wanted to cover, like incidentally before getting to yeah. your topic. But I mean, if I hear what you're saying, it's that at least in Dirty Dozen, they have like a specific goal. In Suicide Squad, they don't. And one of the other things that I feel like they could have spelled out more, like they kind of touch on it tangentially, but they never really hit it, is that they're sent into the field and they don't know what their mission is. And they're baffled, not just because the story doesn't know where they're going, but because they as characters don't know where they're going or what they're doing. And like when they hit the ground and they, they encounter, even when they've encountered bubbly headed bag face alien people, they're they're still like, we 
we don't know what's going on. And the soldier's like, well, we're not going to tell you. Well, I think if the film would have been more purposeful about that, about pointing that out, about being aware of it or making the audience be aware that that is the point, then maybe I would have been more forgiving. But to me, it just it seemed disorganized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the fault of the filmmakers. It was a, a bug, not a feature. Well, here's my question for all three of you. This is the, the thing that I found to be most kind of a story sticking point for me. It's not a problem. It's just something I keep going back to. Does Lee Marvin in Dirty Dozen believe in the mission? Does he believe in killing Nazis? Does he just want to save these guys from the hangman's noose? Is he having fun at any point? Is there a point where he transitions into having fun or being a believer? Like what defines, we we talked about what defines Waller. What defines him? I think there's that moment where they do become the dirty dozen with with the not shaving thing where they do kind of coalesce as a team and you see that pride in him like that they did something together and I think there is a leader in him somewhere and someone who does take pride in leading men and he does become kind of very affectionate toward his men as as it moves on from there and gives them this great party and that that whole like last supper scene you know I get the sense for him more it's personal and about wanting to get these men through this mission and allow them to move on with their lives. Yeah, I think, I think for all his problems with the military brass, he's still a military man. He mm-hmm. believes in, in, in the military as an organization and believes in the cause they're fighting for. I think he sees this as, as a way to accomplish that and, and, and working around some of the areas of, of the military that he doesn't care for. Plus Nazis are bad. Nazis, Nazis are, bad. are bad, and I, I don't. I think that is traditionally supposed to be the soldier's mentality to be much more engaged in your unit and standing next to your fellow soldier than to uh, think about what the mission is for. Because if you do that, then you maybe you start to question the mission. You know, I mean, Lee Marvin is a is a character who does have. A position of authority, but it's not so great that he's planning the mission. He is just carrying it out, and I think he's doing uh, what he's supposed to do. And and I think he just identifies with these these men more than he who would your standard soldier. I think he he likes that they're uh, you know a little rough and tumble. He sees another nonconformist. And, yeah, exactly. and the other characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you end up believing in his mission because of how he takes it, or do you just have to take it as rote because Nazis? Nazis. <laughs> well, and it's also a we know it's part of D Day, so we we know that it is based in something that we know and we recognize, and and that like they are doing this in order to put more D in D Day. Yeah, yeah, it's an, an auxiliary mission. So I think like knowing that it is part of something that we know and we know the outcome of, and we know its importance, maybe uh, gives it a little more weight as well. Genevieve, we may have also kind of cannibalized your topic, which was the ensemble, kind of talking about how these films create these these ensembles. Do do you is there something left to talk about? (laughs) I I do just kind of want to get your guys take on how well these two films do juggle their respective ensembles and particularly the fact that in both cases, there are kind of bigger names and lesser luminaries in that ensemble and certain characters are given more weight than others. I I guess I just want to know, do you see either of these as true ensemble films? 
I feel like this is another one of those weeks where we use the older film to beat up on the newer <laughs> film, which which is not the the purpose of this podcast. But nonetheless, I feel I feel like Dirty Dozen has a true ensemble. I feel like these are actors who are working together. I feel like apart from maybe a couple of moments between uh, Will Smith and, and Margot Robbie, uh, it's a series of, of solo turns. It's just sort of, and now the spotlight shines on you, Diablo, and you do your thing. And, yeah. and uh, it should be an ensemble, and it really, really isn't. It's, it's been interesting to me watching the pole dance around Suicide Squad, you know, as kind of the non-Leto members of the cast have kind of been projecting this super like chummy like we're all pals we all got matching misspelled squad tattoos and (laughs) you know projecting this lord of the rings cast s camaraderie but so much of the suicide squad feels like the actors were all filmed separately or, or in little groups. Like, like you don't get the sense that they're all on set together a lot. Whereas the Dirty Dozen, like you feel like everyone is kind of on set at the same time at all, at all times. Whereas it, there are parts of Suicide Squad where it's like, okay, well, Will Smith wasn't on set that day. One point I would make about the ensembles too is that I think with Dirty Dozen, you can much more easily dismiss the fact that half of the dozen are really not that important. That they're they just... call them the back six. Yeah, that, right, exactly. But you can't do that with Suicide Squad because they've all got their little character designs. And mm-hmm. Well, you, you, can think, with, like, you can with Slipknot. S- Slipknot, yeah. That's <laughs> true. Slipknot. You, so, Slipknot. So here's my question. Sorry to backtrack a little bit. Uh, going back to the they meant to do that defense. Tasha, did you think the half-ass introduction and immediate execution of Slipknot was purposeful? I mean, it was purposeful in the sense that I think they decided they didn't have enough space in the movie to give him a proper buildup and then have his execution be a surprise. So they were just like, oh, by the way, here's another team member that we don't care at all about. Oh, look, he's dead. I think that was a deliberate narrative choice. Yes. I also think it was incredibly dumb. Poor poor Adam Beach. Hey, the good news is you're in the Suicide Squad. (laughs) Uh, Here's the bad news. (laughs) I thought it could have been really funny if they'd executed a little better. Well, yeah. I mean, if if they'd given him a little buildup. Yeah. So many Nazi could have he could have like done so many different knots. <laughs> but sorry, Scott, you were saying about the, the... No, I just I, I think I think it's a little more conspicuous when you don't pay attention to certain characters. You feel like they're underdeveloped more in Suicide Squad than you do in Dirty Dozen. You're you're saying, hey these guys these guys are a bunch of grunts. We don't have to really worry about, you know, the non Cassavetes, Bronson, and Marvin characters, uh, but it, you know, in Suicide Squad, you're like, well, wh- wh- why don't we know more about Killer Croc? <laughs> well, or, that's uh... that's specifically a question I wanted to ask. In both of these movies, are there people that you found compelling that we didn't get enough of that you wanted more of, or did you just want to peel away the extra characters to get more time with the people that you cared about? I want to say I want to know more about Katana, but I don't. I really don't. <laughs> well, see, so her husband died. Yeah, and, and, and he lives and in her sword. Yeah. <laughs> And by the way, here's Sword Eats Souls. Are you ready for a Rick Flagg solo film? Oh, oh boy. <laughs> Can't wait to miss that one. <laughs> I, I want more of Donald Southern's character and Dirty Dozen. I, you, you said at the beginning that we find out like their crimes and their times, but we don't find out their crimes. Most of them, we don't get their crimes until right. he loops back to them. We get their names and their sentences. And given that we get that for 12 people, it's like, well, what differentiates you who got 20 years hard labor from you who got the death penalty? And so many of those people, like, you don't know why they're there, so you don't know how to take them. And Sutherland's character is kind of a, a case in point. For me, it's like he all we know about him is that he's kind of dumb and he goes along like did he go along with somebody's scheme and and rob somebody or did he murder somebody because he's a dope i I wanted to know 
interesting note about Sutherland is he was kind of a nobody uh, when when this movie came out. He he was one of the the back six, and that's why he gets no backstory. But he does have one of the most memorable scenes in the film, the impersonating a general scene. But he wasn't supposed to do that. He he originally only had one line in the film, but uh, Clint Walker apparently balked at doing the that scene. So uh, Aldrich just kind of said to Donald Sutherland, you with the big ears, do you want to do that? I know. I mean, the fact that he was he was barely supposed to be in this movie at all. I mean, he wasn't supposed to be in this movie at all. He was brought in to the movie in general because somebody, I know, didn't find the name in my research, but somebody apparently decided the film was beneath him, quote unquote, and dropped out. So he was brought in. And then he got his character up jumped because of that scene. And this is the movie that got him the role in MASH. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why we have a Donald Sutherland. And it's just, I, I almost put that into my intro of just the, all of the ways in which this movie was troubled, but it was just, it was too much information. Movies have such a fascinating alchemy in that way. What is this movie like if with John Wayne in the Lee Marvin role? It's a much different movie. Is it a better movie? I don't think so. And Jack Palance in the Telly Savalas role. Right. Uh, um, that that might have worked. But uh, <laughs> um, so things come together in an interesting way. And, and sometimes uh, the chemistry is fantastic and career making. And other times it's a disaster. And sometimes it's Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. While The Dirty Dozen is widely available on DVD and for rent on streaming sites, Suicide Squad is still in theaters, and we're just going to guess it's doing better with the hordes of fans who rabidly anticipated it than it's doing with the critics right now. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, you want to kick us off? What's been good to you lately? Uh, Sure. I wanted to recommend a film called Louder Than Bombs. Uh, This is a film by Joachim Trier, who's a young Norwegian director who uh, burst on the scene with Reprise in 2006 and then Oslo August 31st, 2011. I think if you were to describe his style, maybe you would use the word literary. You know, Reprise actually took place in the literary world, and I think he has a talent for articulating the internal struggles of these sort of intelligent, tormented souls who uh, you'd normally find on the page. Um, Louder Than Bombs is his English language debut, and I think it may be his most difficult to access, uh, especially for those who need to feel some kind of affection uh, for the characters, I mean, the, these guys are not easy to like, but uh, you know, I like films about jerks. <laughs> Gabriel Byrne, Jesse Eisenberg, and David Druid star as a father and two sons who are uh, reeling from the loss of their wife slash mother, uh, who's a photojournalist played in Flashback by Isabel Huppert. Uh, and there are questions surrounding Uper's death uh, that come to the surface, uh, namely, you know, did she commit suicide? But Louder Than Bombs is concerned really with the grieving process more generally and how it poisons relationships within the family and then also the relationships that they have with the people outside the family. These are really difficult characters to like, but to me it's more important that they be compelling than, than people I, I necessarily care about. And, and Trier does some really extraordinary things with structure and chronology. Uh, and again, this is a, a literary thing. He's able to, he loops around in time in meaningful ways so that each, you know, emotional moment has, you know, I think the strongest possible impact. I mean, this is a, a you know, I think a prickly film, a tough film to like, but uh, if you're willing to um, do, do the work, there's a lot to like here. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I will I will say for as good as Eisenberg and Byrne and everyone else is, how good is Devin Drew in this film? That that, that kid has a, a really bright future ahead of him. Yeah, he's good. I don't know. I don't think. <laughs> no, I liked him a lot. <laughs> I, I, that, maybe it's maybe it's not the performance so much as the character that mm. that I found uh, really hard to deal with. But you know, teenagers are, I suppose. Uh, he's also known as uh, Young Louis C.K. and and Louis. I was very impressed because okay. I have a generous heart. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do. I guess you do. Keith, oh. it sounds like you're co-signing on Louder Than Bombs. You have a separate recommendation? It's not a, oh my gosh, break down the door, everyone you know to go see it. But uh, but in the summer, it's been largely filled with disappointments. I enjoyed Star Trek Beyond. Uh, not not without problems, but you know, after the last Star Trek Into Darkness, I, I think a lot of people were ready to kind of shut down the big screen uh, Star Trek movies. And, and uh, this one reminded me of why I enjoyed the first film so much. And um, Largely, the, the cast works together so beautifully. I mean, it, it's, it's almost as if these are adaptations of a TV show that never existed because they, they have such nice chemistry and, and they feel like they've been playing off each other for years, which, of course, they have at this point. They've been in several movies together, but nonetheless, it feels like it's kind of a longer relationship. I, I, I think it's a good, not great film that maybe wish we saw these characters and these actors playing them a little more often, like, you know, Star Trek film every couple of years instead of every three or four years. Uh, and a nice send off to Anton Yelchin, who's a very talented young actor who's uh, no longer with us after a uh, freak accident. Yeah. Um- I'm with you. I saw it and like I really disliked the original 2009, like the first retread. I I, I like that one. I rewatched Star Trek Into Darkness as part of a a theatrical experience right before watching Star Trek Beyond. (laughs) And I was actually surprised at how well the films worked together. I'm with you. I think Star Trek Beyond is a flawed film. And I especially have problems with the villain who is yet another on our list of guys who have a machine who's going to blow up the world for because reasons, uh, hand wave. I don't know, something, origins, whatever. But Mm -hmm. so much of the ensemble is just so fun. And it really kind of harkens back to what made the original show interesting. The fact that there were all of these people with different strengths. I wrote this piece for The Verge that I was actually really pleased with about how watching that movie made me realize that there's there's an actual arc to the three films that makes me like the first film so much better. Because it's an actual arc about a character maturing and coming into his leadership. The leadership role that's handed to him for really specious reasons in the first film uh, that he gets through bullying and luck by the by the time beyond rolls around he's earning that role he's learning learning how to grow into it in a really interesting way i think i also enjoyed star trek beyond and would co-sign that recommendation as well uh tasha you got something for us sure this is a film that uh once scott tobias recently reviewed for npr and uh did not like nearly as much as i liked it i didn't (laughs) review it but i did interview the director uh cyan heater is a writer for orange is the new black has done a lot of episodes she's a producer on the show she recently made an independent film called Tallulah that is her writing and directing debut netflix picked it up out of sundance for streaming release and you can watch it on netflix now it just debuted this is a film that like Star Trek Beyond, but in a very different way, has some some definite narrative flaws. But at the same time, there's so much to like about it, and there's so much to appreciate about it. And I just, I want to hand this to every single person who says, like, I want more women in film, I just don't want remakes. I want more feminine women in film, I just don't want them to take over my, my childhood icons. I want fresh, independent, new roles, new voices. This film is all about relationships between a bunch of different women, but it's not a chick flick. It's not corny. It's not sappy. It's 
really kind of raw. Ellen Page stars as a a girl who's homeless on purpose. Um, she likes being rootless. She likes living out of a van. She likes living by her wits. Uh, and then she runs up against a situation with a woman played by Tammy Blanchard, who is aggressively and horrifically neglecting her her young toddler. Um, Ellen Page's character steals the baby on a whim and then has to figure out what to do with it. That decision brings her into connection with a woman played by Allison Janney. And the triumvirate of those three roles, like all three of them, I think, are, are really good in their roles. But I think the film is also just really smart about not villainizing any of them too much, not heroizing any of them too much, turning them all into people who have a lot of complicated things going on and who interact with each other in just increasingly developing and interesting ways over the film. It's really heavily based on Heater's personal experience. That's something I talked to her about a bunch when I when I interviewed her. And I just, I recommend it as a, just kind of a sit down and watch on Netflix kind of movie that's not like anything you're going to see in theaters right now. Yeah, that was actually going to be my pick. So uh, so I guess I, I co-sign uh, that for pretty much all the reasons you lay out. I, I You mentioned that Heater as a Orange is a New Black uh, writer and producer. And I, I kept getting the feeling through this movie that I was watching a really good Orange is a New Black like fa- flashback segment where they kind of go back and trace the trajectory that landed an inmate in prison. It, it has that same feel of like exploring the emotions behind a bad or destructive decision. Hmm. And yeah, I, I really liked it too. And uh, it, oh, it's it's so Bechtel-y. It's always so Bechtel-y. <laughs> it is made entirely out of Bechtel. <laughs> Scott, do you want to uh, non-sign? This I don't want to like. I don't want to rain on everyone's parade uh, here. Uh, so no, I do. Just I, like I you're find, happy we liked I'm, it. I'm ha- I'm really happy that you liked it. <laughs> Two okay. out of three people Ooh. agree. Tallulah no, but, on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Uh, Genevieve, since I have <laughs> stolen your vote, uh, what what are you going to recommend yeah, instead? I'm, I'm going to call an audible here and recommend another movie that recently debuted on streaming, although... Uh some may bristle at uh, calling it a movie because it is a spinoff of a television show, but it is directed by a noted film director. I'm talking about Looking the Movie, which is kind of the after-the-fact wrap-up of the HBO series Looking, which was conceived and uh, spearheaded by Andrew Hay, who directed uh, 45 Years, which we discuss on this podcast, and more pertinent to this movie, uh, Weekend in 2011. I watched Looking to the End and kind of, I was never like super passionate about it the way a a select few were. So I just kind of put uh, Looking the movie on out of curiosity more than anything. And I was really, really enamored of it. I thought it was a really lovely film and kind of beautiful in both emotionally and visually and it's basically the setup is uh jonathan groff's character patrick kind of comes back to san francisco and the san francisco gay scene that he left sort of abruptly and he comes back for a wedding between two characters and it's a very talky movie there's not a lot of incident there's just a lot of like really nice character interactions that kind of explore the thin line between moving on and running away and I I think Jonathan Groff is a really nice presence at the center of it he was kind of not always the best part of the TV series I thought but he really I don't know if like he's just gotten better as an actor. Or he responded to the material more, but the Patrick character is a lot more interesting in this movie than I ever really found him. So uh, yeah, looking the movie, it's uh, on HBO right now. Does it work as like a standalone thing? I mean, it does. It does. Yeah. I don't think you you would need to. I mean, I guess it helps if you have some affection for these characters, and the the central wedding is 
spinning off of something that happened in the final season of Looking, but this is not a super tricky plot at all. It's more just about these great character interactions and being in this scene and hanging out. And Hay really has a way with creating intimacy in public spaces. And there's a lot of that in this. There's a a great scene like in a crowded, there's a couple great scenes in a crowded gay bar, but one in particular that um, uses music really well. The whole movie also uses music really, really effectively, I think. So yeah, I would, I would recommend it. Well, that's awesome. Thank you all for your recommendations. I hope people will check them out. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out August 23rd and 25th. Keith, what do we have lined up? We have a double feature about children and oversized beasts. First, we'll look at Carol Ballard's 1979 adaptation of the kids' lit classic The Black Stallion. We're pairing that with David Lowry's new take on Pete's Dragon, a remake of a 1977 musical that combined animation with live action. Man, I really hope Pete's Dragon is as good as people say and as good as The Black Stallion. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Dirty Dozen, Suicide Squad, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at thenextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com, where I'm an editorial director of film and television. And you can find me on Twitter at kphips 3000 Scott? Yeah, I'm at NPR, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Vulture, Uprox, Musings, etc. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, you can find me writing about film at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance in producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. <laughs>